he's not well. We know that you have the answer. And they found themselves waiting and waiting and waiting. Jesus got the message. He he heard, he, he in fact, he knew what was going to take place. And he told his disciples, he was not there with them in Bethany where Lazarus was sick and the message got to Jesus where he was at and he turned to his disciples and he said, I know Lazarus, our friend, is sick, but it's not a sickness that's unto death. This is a circumstance so that God may be glorified. That's what this is all about, that God may be glorified. And if you find yourself right now in a situation, in a place where you're waiting on Jesus, and you're waiting and you're saying, God, here I am. I trust you. I'm here in this moment right now where I I may not understand exactly why things are unfolding as they are. And I'm waiting on you. And I trust that all of this is going to bring you glory somehow. That everything that, that is in my life, everything that's going on right now, I trust that it's going to bring you glory. Amen. I believe that God is going to get the glory. Praise His name. Praise His name. Amen. You can, you can be seated here today. You were here on our Wednesday night Bible study this week. I opened up and and told you that God had been dealing with me on a certain text. But as my study was taking place, I soon found out on Wednesday night that Jesus wept was too short for a full Bible study, at least on what I had had at that moment. But I do feel the Lord still impressing that on me. Here today, and that is where we're going to touch down here this morning or here this afternoon, that Jesus wept. That scripture is it's the shortest scripture in, in the Bible. It's in John chapter 11, verse 35. We find just those two simple words to describe the, the state in which Jesus found himself on that day, that we see that Jesus wept. Now, in case you are unaware of the, the circumstances that surrounded this, that led to this, uh, this emotion coming from Jesus, I will lay it out for you. And it is this story of Lazarus. And I, I love the fact that this man who was God manifest in flesh, this deity that lived here on earth, that Jesus Christ, who his, his true home was of heaven, that that God who manifested himself in flesh and lived among us, that, that he, was, he was a friend of people. He was just as you and I, where he made connections with others. He made friendships, deep friendships with others. Of course, we have the 12 disciples and even in his three inner circle, James, uh, Peter, James and John, those those three that they were the closest, perhaps even John, he at least refers to himself as the beloved, the one who is the closest 
to Jesus. But even outside of that circle, those 12, there were others. We, of course, read of Mary and Martha, these friends of Jesus. We see others. There were at least 120 who ended up in the day of Pentecost in that upper room, these who had followed Jesus. Matthias, we know, was one who he had followed Jesus from the beginning, and that's why he was the one that they had chosen to replace Judas. We have those who Jesus was close to. Lazarus was one of those that Jesus was close to. This was the brother of Mary and of Martha. And we don't really see uh, him depicted in the scriptures outside of this story. But we can uh, surmise that Jesus had been friendly with him. That he was a friend of Lazarus. This is what the scripture points to in this passage. And, And Jesus gets word that Lazarus was sick. And word gets to him and Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, I know what's about to take place. Lazarus, he's sick. This is not a sickness unto death. This is that that God may be glorified through this situation. He waits a few more days before he ever even leaves. And in this time of waiting, Lazarus ends up dying. Jesus finally makes his way to Bethany to where Mary and Martha are at where Lazarus' body has been laid. Now, I'm sure his disciples, having heard Jesus say that this was a sickness that was not unto death, were a little bit confused because as they came, Jesus did tell them, Lazarus, he's just sleeping. And they say, well, if he's just sleeping, then why is this such an urgent matter that we would come all the way back here where people are seeking to kill you? Why are we coming if Lazarus is just sleeping? Finally, Jesus says it plainly, Lazarus is dead. But I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that you may believe. Nevertheless, let's go into him. They arrive there on the scene and we see Mary and Martha that are there. They approach Jesus and they say, if you just would have been here on time. You just would have come right away. Our brother would not be dead. And Jesus looks at them and he says, Your brother, he will see life again. They say, I know he's going to see life. I know that there is the resurrection where he will have a resurrected body. But Jesus, he says, I am the resurrection and life. It is me. I'm the one. It's not just a hope for your future. It's the hope for your present that you may see something that is dead. But when I walk into the room, when I'm here, I am the resurrection and the life. You're looking at him right now. They say, yes, Jesus, we believe. We believe you. We believe that you can do all things. Then... They begin to weep and they're still weeping. And there's others that are gathered around there. It says that they're wailing, they're weeping, they're crying. It's a loud cry. It's the the mourners who have gathered there. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And they get there and Jesus, it says that when he saw their weeping, the Jews also weeping came with, with Mary on that day. It says that he groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. He groaned in his spirit. He, he had this reaction in his spirit, this, 
this thing, this, this moment of displeasure in his spirit about what was taking place. And there's some arguments in, in uh, the, the scholars, the biblical scholars of what exactly this groaning is. Is it an unpleasantness about, uh, about what took place? Maybe perhaps not because Jesus knew what the end result was going to be. Or was this displeasure at the fact that he was present and they still didn't believe that he was able to do that which he was about to accomplish? And then the next scripture, very next scripture, simply says that Jesus wept. He's asking them, where have you laid the body? And in the moment, with the troubled spirit groaning in his spirit, Jesus asking, can I come and see him? And then Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Again, there's different answers for the biblical scholars that you can, you can look up. They have their different interpretations of what really caused Jesus to weep. Perhaps it was the fact that his friend had just died. Or was it the matter of their unbelief? Whatever the case, compassion moved on Jesus in that moment. His weeping was this sign of his sorrow at the death of Lazarus, the pain that it was causing his friends. His weeping was this, this moment where we see him in his humanity, sympathizing, feeling the, the emotion of, of those who were around him and, and, and understanding that they are hurting right now. And Jesus was hurting with their hurt. We serve a God who he sees you He sees you in your hurt. He sees you in your pain. He sees you in your unbelief. And he weeps. He's hurt by it. He is a God who individually he gets into your situation and he understands exactly what you are going through. He knows. He's a personal God. Jesus knows what you are facing right now. Jesus knows the very thoughts that are going through your mind. Jesus knows every situation that you have found yourself entangled in this week. Jesus knows all of that. He's a personal God. He is a personal God. He knows you inside and out. He knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus, he sees you in your present circumstance. And he has emotion that's entangled in your situation. That in this moment of Jesus weeping. It's, it's uh, the only time that this uh, particular word is used in the scriptural text, this, this word of Jesus weeping here. It's, it's not the same word of that, uh, the, the weeping of those others who were there on that day. That word that was used in these other circumstances was a very loud wailing and weeping and an audible cry of the people. And this word which, which Jesus, when it says that Jesus wept, is a word that is a silent weeping. It is just a, a change of his emotional state in which he is, he is saddened and, and, and disheartened by, by what has gone on in this situation. That Jesus, he is a personal God. He cares 
about you. He cares about your situation. Jesus sees you and he is troubled in his spirit. And Jesus, he wants to do something. And in fact, Jesus will do something. He, When his spirit gets stirred, he can step in and he will step into your circumstance. And he will make a way when there seems to be no way. And for Lazarus, he had been dead for four days. And everybody, when they said, or when Jesus said, can I come and see him? They're like, he's been dead four days. He stinks by now. There's nothing that you can do. If you just would have been here on time, you could have done something. But Jesus says, I'm not too late. I want you to see that my hand, it is still able to reach out and to touch him, to heal him. Your brother, he is not dead. This is not the end. He is going to get up. And he called for Lazarus to come up out of that grave. And Lazarus did wait up out of his sleep out of his death and he came out with his grave clothes on and Jesus said unwrap the grave clothes from his body and when they did so Lazarus he came running out of that place with a a shout and saying I'm alive I'm alive I'm alive Jesus is able to step into any situation and to make a way he's a personal God see but this isn't the only time that we read of Jesus weeping. We see another passage and it's just after this. Though we see it not in the book of John but in the book of Luke. It's in Luke chapter 19 verse 37 that we begin to read. It says that when he was come nigh even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives. That the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For all of the mighty works that they had seen. This referring to all the miracles, but in particular, this miracle, this great miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus and saying, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said to him, master, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, he said to them, I tell you that if these should hold their place, the stones would immediately cry out. So when he was come near, he's coming up to Jerusalem. Now he beheld the city. And it says, he wept for it. He wept over the city. Why did Jesus weep over the city of Jerusalem as he's coming on approach to the city? It tells us, verse 42, saying that if thou hadst known, he's speaking over the people of this this nation, not just one-on-one weeping over one person, but over a whole population of people, these people of Israel. He says, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they're hid from your eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round, keep thee in on every side. And they shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Now, if I could just put that in my own translation here today. The reason that Jesus wept when he looked over the city of Jerusalem for the last time before he would come down and he would be crucified in just a few days. Is he's saying they don't realize what is about to take place. Their eyes have been blinded. They don't realize that I've come to save them from their sin. He's anguished for this city. He's anguished for this people that he has come to save. 
and they have rejected him. He knows that they are about to put him to death. He knows that they are about to reject him. And he, t- he says they don't even realize that by doing this, there's some of them that are going to find themselves trapped in all this evil. That They're going to find themselves compassed about on every side. That, that there is going to be, the, the enemy is going to come in and he's going to begin to tear them apart. He's going to, in fact, come against this very city and the city is going to be torn down. It's going to be found in rubble they don't realize the time that they're living in they don't realize that god has come down to be with them to visit them they don't realize that i've come to save them from their sins he was anguished over a whole city now jesus is not just weeping over a few individuals he's not just weeping over some who are anguished over the death of their brother He's not anguished just over the fact that there are some who don't have belief that God, that he's able to. But now he is weeping over an entire city, over an entire nation that has rejected him. His spirit is stirred by the fact that there are those that would not receive this truth that would set them free from their bondage. His spirit is stirred and he begins to weep. This now is that other word for weeping, an audible cry, a weeping that is, uh, you, you have the tears flowing down his face and a cry that's coming out. Jesus looking out over Jerusalem. It's as if he is like the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was one of these prophets of the Old Testament that was preceding the fall of Jerusalem. His, his, time of being a prophet it continued into the the fall the destruction of jerusalem but he is known as the weeping prophet jeremiah that's moniker that he carries to this day is that of the one who is bears the grief over the fall of the city over the the people who would reject god and he reads uh, some of these passages that explain to us why jeremiah might be called the weeping prophet Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 18, he says that my grief is beyond healing. My heart is broken. Verse 21, he says, I hurt with the hurt of my people. I mourn, I am overcome with grief. Isn't there a balm in Gilead? Isn't there a medicine in Gilead? Isn't there something? Is there no physician there? Why is there no healing for the wounds of my people? He's grieved by his people's plight. He's grieved by the fact that they have rejected God. He's grieved by the fact that there is destruction that is coming their way. He's grieved by the fact that they are not where they ought to be. He's grieved over the people of Israel. He's weeping over the fact that there are those that are lost and dying and going to hell. He's weeping over the fact that there are people that are not going to stand before God on the day of judgment and hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. He's weeping over the fact that there's people that are going to die when the enemy comes to destroy this nation or this this city of, of Jerusalem. He's weeping over this fact. In Jeremiah chapter 9, we read again, just one of many passages, he says, If only my head were a pool of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night for all my people who have been slaughtered. 
Oh, that I could go away and just forget my people and live in a traveler's shack in the desert. For they are all adulterers. They're a pack of treacherous liars. He understands the fact that these are sinners. He understands the fact that these people are in this situation because of their own choices. But he just can't help weeping for the fact that they are sinners. That they are caught up in this mess of their life and it's going to bring destruction. He was moved to tears. He, throughout his ministry, is crying. He can't help but cry. He can't help but weep over the people who are lost. He can't help but to be brought to tears over a people who they don't know God like they ought to know God. He's brought to tears over this people who he has been called to prophesy to, to tell. Go on, he has been instructed, you go. In fact, when Jeremiah was young, at the beginning of this book of Jeremiah, he's saying, God, I can't do this. I'm too young. Who am I that I would go to be sent to these people to tell them this message? And God says, you're not too young, Jeremiah. You're not too young. You need to go. Tell them what I've told you to, to, to say. I need you to go. That This people, they need a voice. They need somebody. Jeremiah is the one who says, it's like a fire that's shut up in my bones. When he says that, he's saying, I I wish that I didn't have to say this. I, I, I don't want to have to tell these people what God is about to do, but I can't help it. It's like a fire that's shut up in there. It's coming out. I wish I could run away from the burden that, that I am carrying this day. I wish that I could run away from the fact that God is going to send destruction on these people for their sin, but I can't get away from it. I can't get away from the fact that God is going to come back that God is going to judge them that God is going to bring them to destruction but if I could just reach some of them he's weeping he goes day after day he's not seeing the results that he wants to see He's not seeing the nation turn. He's not seeing it, but yet he goes day after day with the mission that God has placed him on to go and tell the people that they need to turn away from their sins, that they need. He is the voice that's crying out in the wilderness. He's the one that's going and telling them day after day, you need to get right with God. You need on. He's weeping over this fact. He's praying in his private time. He's there spending time with God and saying, God, if you would just wake them up, would you do it. We read of when the when the city of Jerusalem is, is being destroyed that that Jeremiah he had found a cleft and a rock outside the city and he had hid himself there and he was watching the destruction of the city and he's crying over the city. He's anguished over it. He's anguished over the fact that these people are lost. They're being brought into bondage. I'm not going to be too long today, but I hope that there's somebody who you could feel the anguish, who you could feel as burdened as Jeremiah felt, as Jesus felt over a people who are lost, over a people who they're blind to the fact that God is here to save them from their sins. Is there somebody that would be moved to tears? Is there somebody that would be moved to weeping as Jesus wept? Well, God is not willing that any 
should perish. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would have everlasting life. That is God's will. That is God's desire. That is what God wants. He is not a God that is trying to send people to hell. God did not create hell for you. God did not create hell for people. God created hell for Satan. God created hell for those who are cast out of heaven. But hell is there for those who would not obey the scripture. And there is in one of two destinations that people will end up in one day. They will either be in heaven or they will spend an eternity in hell. It's one or the other. I wish that we would weep as Jesus wept. I wish that there would be something that would be stirred in our spirit for the people that we rub shoulders with every day. I wish that we would have the same desire that God has, that there wouldn't be any that would perish. There would be somebody here today who would be so stirred by the people around them, by your neighbors, the fact that it has been you who has been commissioned as a missionary to rub shoulders with them. And what am I doing? What am I doing to make sure that they hear this gospel message? What am I doing as a disciple of Jesus who has been sent to preach this gospel to every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue? What am I doing? What am I doing? In Ezekiel chapter 22, Ezekiel chapter 22, it says that I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge to stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. God was seeking for somebody to stand in the gap to pray for the people, to pray for the nation. But he says, I couldn't find anybody to do it. I couldn't find somebody who was burdened enough for this nation to weep over it. To be stirred in their spirit over the people who are lost. I couldn't find enough. I couldn't find somebody who would stand in the gap who would make up the hedge. I couldn't find somebody who would get on their knees and pray. I couldn't find somebody who would fast. I couldn't find somebody who would weep. I couldn't find somebody in that day. I couldn't find them. And so these people are lost. These people are lost. This is a simple message today, but I hope there's a stirring in somebody's heart. I have a video that I want to play. It's something that has stirred me. I've watched it several times. I know that probably others have. It's been around for a while. It's a clip from a message that was preached by a man named David Wilkerson. I want to play this video, and after... This we're going to stand. We're going to begin to pray over those who God has sent you to. We're going to pray over this city of Kindleville. We're going to pray over whatever community it is that you live in. We're going to pray over your workplace. We're going to pray over your neighbors. We're going to pray 
for those who are lost. We're going to pray for those who you rub shoulders with. We're going to pray for those who God has sent you to. We have that video queued. We're going to play this. It's a couple minutes long here, but I, I just want you to listen and be stirred. And I look at the whole religious scene today, and all I see are the inventions and ministries of man and flesh. It's mostly powerless. It has no impact on the world. And I see more of the world coming into the church and impacting the church rather than the church impacting the world. I see the music taking over the house of God. I see entertainment taking over the house of God. An obsession with entertainment in God's house. A hatred of correction and a hatred of reproof. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? Whatever happened to anguish in the ministry? It's a word you don't hear in this pampered age. You don't hear it. Anguish means extreme pain and distress. The emotion so stirred that it becomes painful. Acute, deeply felt inner pain because of conditions about you, in you or around you. Anguish, deep pain, deep sorrow, agony of God's heart. We've held on to our religious rhetoric and our revival talk, but we've become so passive. All true passion is born out of anguish. All true passion for Christ comes out of a baptism of anguish. You search the scripture and you'll find that when God determined to recover a ruined situation, he would share his own anguish for what God saw happening to his church and to his people. And he would find a praying man and he would take that man and literally baptize him in anguish. You find it in the book of Nehemiah. Jerusalem is in ruins. How is God going to deal with this? How is God going to restore the ruin? Now, folks, look at me. Nehemiah was not a preacher. He was a career man. But this was a praying man. And God found a man who would not just have a flash of emotion, not just some great sudden burst of concern and then let it die. He said, no, I broke down and I wept and I mourned and I fasted. And then I began to pray night and day. Why didn't these other men, why didn't they have an answer? Why didn't God use them in restoration? Why didn't they have a word? Because there was no sign of anguish. No weeping. Not a word of prayer. It's all ruin. Does it matter to you today? Does it matter to you at all? That God's spiritual Jerusalem, the church, is now married to the world? That there's such a coldness sweeping the land? Closer than that, does it matter about the Jerusalem that's in our own hearts? The sign of ruin that's slowly draining spiritual power and passion? Blind to lukewarmness? Blind to the mixture that's creeping in? That's all the devil wants to do is get the fight out of you. 
and kill it. So you won't labor in prayer anymore. You won't weep before God anymore. You can sit and watch television and your family go to hell. Let me ask you, has what I just said convicted you at all? There's a great difference between anguish and concern. Concern is something that you, that begins to interest you. You take an interest in a project or a cause or a concern or a need. And I want to tell you something I've learned over all my years, 50 years of preaching. If it is not born in anguish, if it has not been born by the Holy Spirit, where when you saw and heard of the ruin that drove you to your knees, took you down into a baptism of anguish where you began to pray and seek God, I know now, oh my God, do I know it. Until I'm in agony, until I have been anguished over it, and all our projects, all our ministries, everything we do, where are the Sunday school teachers that weep over kids they know are not hearing and they're going to hell? You see, a true prayer life begins at the place of anguish. You see, if you, you set your heart to pray, God's going to come and start sharing your heart, His heart with you. Your heart begins to cry out, Oh God, your name is being blasphemed. The Holy Spirit's being mocked. The enemy is out trying to destroy the testimony of the Lord's faithfulness and something has to be done. There's going to be no renewal, no revival, no awakening until we're willing to let Him once again break us. Folks, it's getting late and it's getting serious. Please don't tell me. Don't tell me you're concerned when you're spending hours in front of internet or television. Come on. Lord, there's some need to get this altar and confess. I am not what I was. I am not where I'm supposed to be. God, I don't have your heart or your burden. I've been I wanted it easy. Just want to be happy. But, Lord, true joy comes. True joy comes out of anguish. There's nothing of the flesh will give you joy. I don't care how much money. I don't care what kind of new house. There is absolutely nothing physical can give you joy. It's only what is accomplished by the Holy Spirit when you obey Him and take on His heart. Build the walls around your family. Build the walls around your own heart make you strong and impregnable against the enemy. God, that's what we desire. Could we all stand? What I would like for us to do is not for everyone. I don't want everyone to come up to the altar. Instead, I want us to line this place. The walls that go around this building and this sanctuary. If you could just make your way to whatever's closest to you, whatever position that might be. We're going to find a position of prayer here right now. And we're going to begin the very place of ourselves. We're going to begin praying, God, stir me, God, move me. God, help me, Lord Jesus, to have the Passion, the desire to see those 
who are lost to be one, God, in the same manner that you desire to see it. Oh, there's somebody who could cry out when you finish praying for yourself, when you finish praying that God would move you into that position in which you are, have the heart that he has, then you could begin to pray outwardly. Begin to pray for those who are lost. Begin to pray and for those who are hurting. Pray for our city. Begin to pray for the city of Kendallville. Oh, we don't have to wait any longer. Let's just begin to pray right now in Jesus' name.
Oh, would you call them out by name? Would you call somebody out by name right now? Come on, would you stand in the gap? They need you. Need somebody who will pray for them. And there's not going to be a dismissal today. If you at any point need to leave, amen, you're dismissed from this place. But I just feel a heart. God's heart is in this place. Come on, if there's somebody who can get a hold of it. Amen, we're just going to turn this building into a prayer, a prayer room. We're just turning this building into a house of prayer right now. Amen. Amen.